money conversation is not one and done. Like you can't just talk about money once and feel like you have it figured out. And especially if you have kids, you know, your expenses are changing all the time. When you have people that you bring together with a different background about money, uh, different thoughts about how to spend that money, and then you give them the same bank account, uh, you know, a lot of things can go wrong. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F-Word. Welcome back to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. I am pleased you're back with us for another week, another interview on the podcast. Before we go into the conversation with my guest, Jamie Bossy, can you do me a favor? If you have a favorite episode or you just think someone you know would enjoy the podcast, send them an episode that you feel like would resonate with them. Also, if you have a few minutes, if you can head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review, it really does help bring guest on like Jamie Bossy. So who is Jamie? Well, Jamie, she's a financial planner who works for Aspire Wealth Partners. She's also a mother, a wife, an author, a mother of a corgi. And today we talk about how small steps have big impacts, how these small steps that we often avoid doing because they seem like they're not going to get us to where we want to go. But in fact, it's these small steps that actually have the biggest impacts. So we really talk about this idea, how small financial changes can transform our lives. We're so used to looking for that big ticket change, hoping that it comes, when in fact, it's the small daily steps and changes that we can make that really are going to make a difference. When Jamie works as a financial planner, she helps master what's next by clarifying clients' goals. And we talk about that in this podcast, but we also talk about Jamie's passion for mentoring and financial literacy. With that passion, she decided to become an author. She wrote three books and has one more on the way. She has an adult book called Money Boss Mom, helping young parents be the boss of their financial future. Get it? Boss and her last name is Bossy. I think that's where it's going. It's a great book. I did read it and I highly recommend it. And she's got two wonderful children's books, both of which I read to my kids. It's a series called Milton, the Money Savvy Pup. These are great books. I've enjoyed reading them to my kids. And in fact, my five-year-old even is trying to read them to our three-year-old. It's pretty funny. During this conversation, we talk about how to and when to have healthy money conversations with our kids. We talk about how our unconscious money scripts might be limiting our financial health. We even talk about procrastination and what Jamie has done in her life to avoid procrastination, especially procrastinating on those important things in life. We also explore how our parents' financial behaviors directly and indirectly have a huge impact in terms of how we think and feel around money. Jamie shares some personal stories about when her parents called her in college to explain they were filing for bankruptcy. And we dive into Jamie's book, her new book for adults, Money Boss Mom. And 
I appreciate the approach Jamie took to this book as it acts as a guide for our financial health. And when I say guide, it really points us in the right direction as we're trying to navigate this crazy financial system that we live in. And Jamie's book is a helpful resource that allows you to explore these topics chapter by chapter. And it doesn't have to be done in a linear progression. That's what I really like about the book. If you're curious about a certain topic, you just go to that chapter. I hope you enjoyed this wonderful conversation with Jamie Bossy. Jamie, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sean. I'm glad to be here. I'm happy for you to be here too. I kept seeing your some of your posts now and then on LinkedIn and I saw that you had authored a few books and I had been looking for a children's book to read to my kids around money. And I came across a post on Milton, the money savvy pup books. And I I want to reach out to chat about your books, your adult books, and just your journey in this wonderful world of finances that we find ourselves. But to start, I wanted to talk about the Gravedigger remote control car experience you had with Amazon. What is this? And what significance does this Greg Digger remote control car have on your money story? So picture this. Uh, it's one of those random holidays that you're, that kids are out of school. And so I'm with my kindergartner. We're at Target. And he's five at the time. So, you know, everything he sees, he wants to buy. But then we, we see it, right? It's this Grave Digger remote control truck. Like it's a monster truck, makes a lot of noise, has a controller. It's so exciting. And my son is like, hey, mom, we need to buy this. And I'm like, well, you know, that's not in our spending plan for today. And he says, okay, well, then why don't you just buy it on Amazon, mom? And I'm like, oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) My kid doesn't understand that buying something on Amazon is actually something that costs money and is a financial transaction that takes place. So that was kind of the the catalyst for me to think about, okay, I'm failing at teaching my kids about money. How can I turn this train around? So that started my research on what kids can understand about money and at what ages and how to start teaching them these concepts. So that really started me down the path of writing the Milton, the Money Savvy Pup books to create a way to talk to my kids about money. You thought of what can you do? And naturally you went to publish two children's books. (laughs) Yeah, it didn't start that way. It started with you know, the research piece. So I first really studied kind of the topics that they could understand. And there's some really great resources out there. Uh, Moneyasyougrow.org has some good charts on what kids can understand about money. And I just started reading books about teaching kids about money. And then I, I write anyway for my company blog and things. And so I was like, well, maybe I can write something about Milton. He was our actual dog. So I wanted to put a fun character in there that the kids could relate to. And then it grew from there. Yeah. And, you know, I've been enjoying reading them to my kids. And I want to ask something because I often get this question of what can I teach my kids about money? How or when is it appropriate? What types of conversations? And I want to kind of blend both of your books, your adult book and the children's book. What value do you find going through your first chapter of your book where you talk about money scripts and really understanding your origin story, your money? What value does that have, if at all, on us as parents to be able to teach our kids about money? Is there some value in understanding our own origin stories before we attempt to teach our kids about money? Definitely. The more you understand about where you're coming from and what are your unconscious bias about money, the more you can navigate around them when you're teaching the next generation how to handle their money. 
So I think arming yourself with that knowledge of, okay, like what is my money script? What are my ingrained behaviors that I do consciously and unconsciously? And how can I kind of flip the script and do something different to navigate around them? And then how is this impacting what I'm portraying money as to my children? Right. Because if you're, for instance, like a money avoider is your money script, you may not be talking about it. They never see you talk about it. And then they just don't know what it is or how to use it or, or anything about it. And so if you know that about yourself, you can consciously make the effort to to change what you're portraying about money. We had uh, Dr. Klontz on to talk about the money script research as someone who's in the financial uh, industry. What was your experience going back to find out your money scripts and what did that teach you about yourself that perhaps you just didn't know? Yeah, I thought it was really interesting. So for me, you know, I grew up in a lower class family. Uh, no one had gone to college and money. I really did feel like I was I was had money avoider tendencies, which is funny as a financial planner now. So I tended to think money was more of a bad thing that maybe you, you, you didn't work to get it. You just you just got it. And a lot of those things were ingrained, even though, you know, my training, my education, things I teach people now are completely different. That money script was still in there. You know, it was still a part of me because it was how I grew up. And I, and we just thought, you know, the people that live on the Hill, that was like the wealthy (laughs) area in my, in my town, you know, they must, they're just like trust fund babies and they, how do they even sleep at night? You know, (laughs) but that's really not how I feel about money in general. You know, I feel like I help people build wealth and I think wealth is a good thing, but it's just funny how it is just a part of you and you have no control over it. As a planner, has that helped you to kind of meet people where they're at as you're talking to people? Cause when they come into your office and, and I guess I'm speaking for a bit of experience here as a planner myself before this idea of opening up our unconscious beliefs, I used to think people just thought the same as me around money. And I'd be like, Oh, why aren't you doing it? I'm money vigilance. And I used to think, why aren't they thinking the same way as me? So What, if at all, did that change your ability to see your clients where they're at? Yeah, I think it really helps a lot because people do have big differences in the way that they view money. And I feel like as a financial planner, a lot of times we talk about, you know, here's the plan, here are the recommendations, and then they don't do those things, right? So you're like, oh, we fixed the problem, but you won't do the things to get you to the to the, the end game, right? And so then if you understand their money scripts, that gives you some clues as to maybe why they're not taking action on those things or what you need to do to help them change the behaviors to, to accomplish that goal. What was Milton's money script? Good question. I don't know his money script for sure. I think he might be kind of a money status guy. <laughs> yeah. Those corgis are pretty, they like their appearance. Yeah, um, they're kind of showy. You know? Yeah. <laughs> you made me think of a TED Talk by a guy named Tim Urban, and it's called Inside the Life of a Procrastinator. And essentially during this TED Talk, he talks about his life as a procrastinator and the difficulties he's had and his love-hate relationship with deadlines, because that's basically the only thing that gets him to do things. But at the end of the talk, he said something that was profound that has always stuck to me, and your story kind of made me think of this. And I'm going to quote him. He says, I don't think non-procrastinators exist. That's right. I think all of you in the audience are procrastinators. Now, you might not be a mess like me, but I think we all are procrastinators, and we need to think about what we're really procrastinating on because everybody is procrastinating on something in life. As a mother of four, a mother of a corgi, you have a spouse, full-time professional, an author, and I'm sure many more commitments. 
I'm sure diving into these creative processes while you have a young family was not the most easy thing to do and could have easily been procrastinated. I just want to touch on what impact has being able to write these three books had on your story that you tell yourself about yourself? So the procrastinating thing, I totally agree with that. I think a lot of us, you know, it's easier to procrastinate, right? Like you have a busy day, you have things going on. It's easier to just do what you're doing and not tackle that next thing. You know, so for me, getting some of these things done, you know, writing a book while I have all these other things going on, I just had to find ways to trick myself into working on it, honestly. Like for instance, the Milton books, I've written those in the chair at the hair salon. <laughs> so, so I have a lot of gray hair. You can't tell right now because my hair lady takes good care of me, but I spend, you know, like two and a half hours in the hair salon chair every six weeks. What I would do when I wanted to accomplish something was, you know, take my notes, not bring my laptop, not bring my phone, like just work on writing out like what I wanted to write in the books or a chapter or whatever it is I was working on. So that really forced me to kind of focus on those things. So I do agree. I think procrastination is, is a big thing. So we just have to learn how to like trick ourselves and figure out how to get things done. Yeah. Well, three books. That's uh, very well done considering you have double the amount of kids that I do. <laughs> <laughs> you know, writing a book is always a, a multi-year process, right? So yeah. I started kind of writing blogs that I turned into chapters. And I started that back in probably 2016 and didn't get it done until 2021. So speaking of, of families, we talked talk, you have four kids, as we know, and especially through the money script work, money, it inescapably is woven into all of our aspects of our lives. It's one of the rare things that indirectly or directly impacts every decision we make. I want to go back to your money story to a, a time in college when you received a phone call from your parents to talk about their financial decision. Can you recall what this phone call was and what impact, if, if any, did this have on you? Yeah. So I recall the whole thing very vividly. So it was actually a K-State home football game day. So I had been tailgating with my friends most of the day, got back home, answered the phone and it was a landline phone. So this is like 2001. For those of you that don't know, it was a phone that was attached to the wall with like a cord, not a cell phone. <laughs> and so the phone rings, I answer it. It's my mom. And she's calling to tell me that they're filing for bankruptcy. And I'm thinking, bankruptcy? Like, what? Are you going to jail? Like, am I going to have to drop out of school and come home and raise my siblings? Like, what does this mean? How did this happen? So I remember that actually that phone call on that day very vividly. From that point on, I decided to educate myself more on financial topics because I knew that I didn't have a good background there, right? So if my parents were filing for bankruptcy, how do I prevent this from happening to me and going down this same road? So that actually started my journey in taking a class on financial topics. So personal financial planning 101 at K-State. And um, then that eventually led to me majoring in that subject and then working to help others have better financial lives. So it really set the path of my career without me really planning on it. Hmm. When you said bankruptcy, when you repeat it back to me, you use the exclamation mark if you're writing this down. So it seemed like there was some surprise there. And earlier you had talked about how your money script tended to be around the money avoidance. So 
did this catch you off surprise? Did you see indications that this was going to be happening with your parents? Not at all. So I think maybe they are money avoiders too, I would guess. We just didn't really talk about it much at home. Like it wasn't something that was common to talk about. And and if we were talking about it, it was a bad thing, right? It was like, oh, that rich person was mean to this other person because they're rich, I guess. (laughs) You know, it just didn't make a lot of sense. So no, I didn't have any idea it was coming, but probably because I didn't know anything about their financial situation, to tell you the truth. Yeah, it's always so fascinating to see the lineage of how much we learn from our parents. And this makes me think of in psychological terms, they talk about how through events in our childhood, we can sometimes develop a survivor mindset or a victim mindset. So survivor might be like, I'm going to use this experience as something to learn from and make myself and put myself in a better situation. Or in contrast, the victim perspective, it might paralyze them and maybe it actually brings them down to some degree. It seems that you perhaps accepted this and you just explained you went on to get personal finance courses. Now look at your year or your career, you're writing books on it. Do you recall how you decided to move forward and take this? And I would say as a learning experience after seeing what you've all done since that phone call. Yeah, I think I think I really took ownership of it. Like, okay, you know, I'm an adult now. How am I going to control my financial life and change my story? So it doesn't match my parents' story. So I had already kind of changed, started to change that story by going to college because they, you know, no one in my family had, you know, further their education beyond high school. So I think I already kind of had that mindset of like, okay, this is my life. I have to do something about it. And what, what do I want? So I think, you know, going to college and then, you know, once I learned of this bankruptcy, changing my major and, you know, taking those courses to make my financial life better was just what I had to do, you know, because I didn't want to go down that same path. Mm -hmm. So I want to go into your books here. And I'm going to start at the start, the very start of Money Boss Mom. And, you know, I put dad there too when I read it. But uh, (laughs) Or dad, yeah, yeah. or dad. On the first page, the dedication side, I see that there's a dedication for Waylon. I'm not sure whom he is. I can make a guess, but I'll let you answer that. But one of the sentences you put there was, thank you for believing in me, even when I stopped believing in myself. And as I was reading that, I thought about a professor that is in a class last week said something that really those two drew me together to think like, oh, wow. So I'm going to share what they said. And it was on the psychological uh, benefits of acceptance from people in our lives. And what she said is through, she was talking about partners accepting other ones. Through your gaze, I get the courage to be who I am. You give me permission by getting me, then I can start exploring. So I want to ask who is Waylon and what influence does Waylon have on your journey as a professional writing these books, um, whether it's Milton or this book for adults? Yeah, so Waylon is my husband, and good job pronouncing it. Not everyone pronounces it properly oh. when they when they read it. <laughs> but yeah, he's my husband. We've been married since 2008, so he's seen me through a lot of these adventures of writing books and having kids and all and all the things. The book journey. I started out like, okay, I've got this. I have some good content written here, some good starting points. Like I'm two thirds of the way there. It's going to be great. Like I just got to put my mind to it and get going. Uh, and then when you get down to it, right, it's when you're working on the book at six in the morning or after the kids go to bed at eight at night and you'd rather be watching Game of Thrones or whatever, you know, <laughs> you're like, ah, what am I doing? And then, you know, I ran into a lot of roadblocks too, where it's like, 
it was harder than I thought it was going to be. You know, I had written things before, but when you study like what goes into a good chapter, it's not just a punchy blog, right? Like my blog is, you know, blogs are like 700 words and it's like, kind of like, here's three points, bing, bang, boom. But, you know, chapter, you need to have stories. You need to have statistics. You need to have like personal references. Uh, you need to cite those references, all these things. And so, you know, there was a lot of frustration in the process and I would, you know, get frustrated and my husband would be like, okay, well, what are you going to do now? You know, like what's next? And so I was like, well, I'm, I'm going to go finish it. <laughs> like, let's go. So he really helped me get through that. And, you know, he had to take it on a lot of the keeping the kids out of my hair while I was doing it also. It's interesting when you have that support of what you can accomplish. What was it like to do the last save as, or when you saw your book for the first time, like what feelings would that have evoked inside of yourself? Some of it is disbelief, right? So you like save it and then you're like, I messed this up somewhere. Like I have to ever go back and like read this again. Like this is, God, can't be done. So I would say disbelief, uh, euphoria. Cause it's like, Oh, it's been, you know, five years in the making. Let's finally get it done. And just relief too, where you're like, okay, this has been a part of who I am for the last, you know, couple years at least. Um, and a part of my daily life in the last six months to a year for sure. So it was like, okay, phew we can get back to some level of normalcy. Well, congrats. Thank you so much. So with the, the Money Boss Mom book, when, when I go into bookstore, I see a lot of books on building your, uh, the financial side, a lot of books on building the optimal portfolio or how to get rich really quick by trading stocks. When I read your book, I realized that that is not your demographic and I feel like that was intentional. <laughs> I want to go into why did you write this book? And I want to start by the first chapter or the prelude. You talk about Monica. And I think Monica has some significance in the whole book. And as someone in their 30s who have a spouse and kids, it resonated with me, is that it seems like we subscribe to this narrative of go to college, get a, get a degree or whatever it is, get a job, get a promotion, buy some houses, buy cars, and then hopefully we, we can be happy and satisfied. However, as Monica felt, she feels trapped and can't breathe. So who did you write this book for? So I wrote this book for kind of the Gen X, Gen Y, you know, millennial parent, right? So we, you know, a lot of us are college educated. We have good careers. We have a lot of things going for us. Maybe we have the, you know, perfect 2.5 kids, white picket fence, all the things. But when a lot of people come meet with me, they're still, they're like, they do say things like, I feel trapped. I feel stuck. I make more money than I ever have in my life or more money than my parents do, but I still don't have any extra to show for it. Where is it going? What am I doing? So, so I wrote this for, for those people who, you know, we have a lot of moving parts in our lives. You know, if you have a career to manage, if you have kids to manage, you know, and all the, the cash flow demands that go with that, right? So if, if daycare costs more than your mortgage, then that changes the game for you. And if you suddenly go from one kid to three kids, if you have twins, you know, that makes life really complicated, and as a parent, there's just so many more pitfalls that you can run into too, right? You know, you have a need for life insurance now because people depend on your income for their survival. You know, the estate planning becomes an important conversation. You know, do you have a will? Who would raise your kids if you could not do that? So there's just so many, you know, pitfalls to navigate and avoid 
And then also all these competing priorities where you're trying to uh, save for your kid's college education, but you're still paying off your grad school loan. You know, you're saving for retirement, but you got this expensive daycare to pay for that costs more than your mortgage. You know, you can't figure out your tax situation because your income changes every year. So there's just so many moving parts. You know, I wanted to, to make a guide to help people navigate this, you know, crazy and exciting phase of life. As you're explaining all those commitments that are on us financially and with kids, it's overwhelming. And the money system is not the easiest to navigate. And I think you did a really, really good job of making that guide to use your word. How did you envision someone using this book? Is it in conjunction with someone like yourself, a financial planner? Is it on their own? Is it maybe a combo of both? But yeah, how how is someone best served using this book? And I ask from it from this perspective also, it's like with this overload that we have already, I find at times we could offload too much information to people. So is this piece by piece that they should read or all at once? So with the book, I wrote it so it could be nonlinear, you know, meaning you don't have to read it front to back if you don't, if you don't want to, because parents are busy. You know, we just talked about all those things that they're going through. And especially if you have little kids in the house, you might not be sleeping through the night anyway. So you don't have a lot of time for like a pleasurable reading session. So I wrote it so that if you, you know, say you heard that you need life insurance now because you're a parent, like, okay, just read chapter four and you should be able to get good information that you need to know about what to do next in that category. Or if you're struggling with cash flow, you know, go straight to cap chapter three and, and read through that and it'll give you some good action items to get your cash flow set up in a better way. It is laid out, like if you do read it front to back, it makes a lot of sense going that way because we start with kind of the money scripts and your background with money and how to change some of those behaviors and understand yourself a little better. And then moves into some of the, you know, like building net worth, the cash flow piece, and then the rest of the things that you need to know. But I really wanted it to be available to to anyone. So if you're not working with a financial planner, that you could get some good insights and kind of cut through the noise and get to like, okay, here are the top three things I need to know in this category. But if you are working with a financial planner, it can be a good tool to give you some ideas of things to discuss with them and help explain things in a more understandable way. You know, that last part is what really spoke to me is when you said it could give you some ideas on what to talk to your financial planner if you have one about. I really like this nonlinear approach that you took because I think at times we can consume too much information where we don't absorb it, especially when we have this busyness of our lives where I, I really found that I, I could just pull up a chapter and read about net worth, like you said, life insurance or, or whatever, when they needed that information. I've heard people talk about financial literacy in this way of just-in-time financial literacy. So I appreciated that, but... I feel like financial planners could read this book and get a lot of value and like, hey, this is how we make it simple because there's too many charts, too much jargon, too much people trying to use fancy words in our industry. So I think it was a breath of fresh air reading this book. Thanks. Yeah, I think there is just so much noise. You know, people just hear, oh, I need to be buying Bitcoin. Oh, I need to be doing this. Oh, I should be saving more. Oh, I should not have this debt, you know, they just are hearing so many things and you're just going in so many different directions. It's hard to just like zone in on what's important and like do the next thing that you need to do to get closer to what you're trying to reach. Yeah. Sometimes that larger picture can paralyze us as opposed to just taking one step at a time. Exactly. I, I listened to your podcast with Michael Kitsis and during that podcast, you talked about a different, not a different, but a newer demographic that you're, you're serving at your firm, largely the ones who are reading 
the book or you designed the book for. I don't need to go into the stats on how much money stresses out people, whether we're Canadian, American, or across the world. Money is a huge stressor in our lives. And as I discussed earlier, I mean, it's woven into all aspects of our lives, to our relationships, to our dreams, fears, desires. Money has a play at hand. If you could have a blank canvas on how you think financial information should be delivered to individuals, what would you draw on that canvas? Mm, I love that question. The money conversation, there's so many moving parts as we've talked about today. So I think it has to be really individualized. So if it was, if I'm visualizing a, a canvas, I would have each person visualize their own canvas, right? So when I think about how to handle all the things going on that I think about like do one thing, like what's the next right thing that I need to do. So in order to do that, you need to know where you're trying to get to and why you're going that way. So I think for each person just to visualize, you know, what is your big vision for your life? Where do you want to be? Who do you want to be one year from now, three years from now, five years from now? And then we can build the plan to get you closer to that now. And so we can start doing those steps to move you closer in that direction. And one of my old uh, managers at a previous position, he had a reference that I really like. Um, His name is Chad Hamilton. And he would always ask, you know, what's the most important piece of a puzzle? And, you know, some people are like, duh, it's the corner pieces. But that wasn't the answer. The answer was the most important piece of the puzzle is the picture on the front of the box. Ah. I was thinking what, the first piece, but you're right. See, okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it's, it's a picture on the front of the box because, you know, it gives you that vision of where you're trying to go, what you're trying to create. And when you have that in mind, making the decisions you're making now is easier when you're trying to figure out what am I doing today to get closer to that vision. So, and if you're trying to change things too, like if you're trying to change a behavior and spend less money or do something differently, it makes it a lot less painful if you're doing it for the greater good of that picture instead of, uh, oh, I'm just not spending money today because I shouldn't. You know, it's more like I'm not spending money today because my goal is to take my son to Disney World next year or whatever it is. You know, if you have that big vision in mind, it makes everything you're doing now make more sense and make your decisions more clear. Yeah, I really like that. And I think discipline is fleeting at best at times until we link it to an overall vision, like the cover of the puzzle. I like that. I like that uh, little riddle or statement, whatever you want to call it. (laughs) (laughs) And I, I really, really find that powerful. And in your book, I actually pulled a quote out that is in alignment with what you're saying here around the chapter on values. And the quote you had from Will Rogers is, too many people spend spend money they earn to buy things they want to impress people they don't like. Why did you pick that quote? And how, if at all, does this link to this cover of the puzzle piece? Yeah, because I think we just get so overwhelmed with what we think we should want or should be doing based on what others around us are doing. And now we have such good access to that, right? Like we can see their Instagram feed. We know exactly where they're going and what car they drive and what they're doing with their money. And then we think, oh, we need to upgrade our car or we need to go on more vacations or we need to do this and that and that. And and it's not about that. You know, we're not trying to be them. We're not trying to spend money the way they do. You know, it's about figuring out what, what your goals are, what your values are and what kind of life you want to lead. And then making the decisions you're doing now fit that instead of trying to impress people you don't even like. <laughs> <laughs> As a planner, have you 
found a way, I know you said earlier, and I agree, personal, all this is personal, but a way that if people are listening, could start that process of trying to identify their values, um, the values that they would want to start spending their money on? Yeah, I think we try to have a lot of conversations in the in the first meetings about just kind of the why, like what, like, yeah, you want to save more money, but why? Like, what are you trying to do with it? Or, you know, you talk about, oh, I want to be prepared for retirement. Well, why? Like, what do you want that to look like? What does that mean to you? And so we try to get them to talk about, you know, what they're trying to create, like what that retirement picture does look like, create an experience for that. So it's not just like, I want to retire at 65. It's I want to retire at 65 and be able to do, do X, Y, Z and visit my kids in different countries and, you know, do all of these things. So it's more trying to get people to, to create that vision in the early meetings and figure out what the goals are, what they value, and then try to create a spending plan that makes sense for what they value instead of just spending reactively on whatever comes up. Those advertisements from Amazon get you. They really do. Yeah. They really do. Yeah. And I think as a parent, like this demographic that I'm working with, there's just so many different things coming your way, right? So you have a kid who plays soccer for you know, just as on the city league for $30 a season or whatever it is. And then the next year they join the premier team. And so now they need hundred dollars worth of jerseys and you have to pay for thousands of dollars worth of hotel rooms. And, and the, you know, the, these things just change on you and you don't really realize it's happening. So kind of figuring out and making a plan for some of those things. So you're ready for them. You brought in kids there and it actually made me think yesterday I had to go get some more lights for our Christmas tree and I decided to take my five-year-old down to the toy aisle. And sure enough, he wanted everything. And I told him it's not a buying day. <laughs> Through your research and your experiments with four kids, what have you learned is an effective way to have that conversation with your kid when they're like, I want this, I want this, I want that. Well, now, so my older ones are eight and six. And so they've been doing, they've been get, earning money for a while now and been able to buy their own things. So with them, it's a little bit easier where I'm like, okay, well, if you like that, you know, I'll take a picture of it and I'll take a picture of the price and then we can go count your money at home and see if you want to come back. And that is pretty effective in that it, it stops the, the now, now, now situation. And so they have to think about it, right? So I have the picture of it. I, I know how much it costs. You know, we go home, count their money and see, okay, this is a big chunk of your money. Do you sure you want to spend all this? And then that gives them time to think about it too, where they are like, okay, do I really want this thing? Like once we've gotten home, do you still want it? Or do you still even remember what it is? If, you know, if I don't show you the picture on the phone. So I've used that quite a bit. And I think that has helped create some delayed gratification. And I think that works well for adults too. Like if yeah. you really want something too at the store, do the same thing. Yeah. Like take a picture of it and say, okay, go home, cool off. And then like, look at it. Do I really need that jacket? <laughs> Is it worth going back to the store to get it now? <laughs> through teaching your kids about money, we actually learn more about ourselves as well. Going through that journey, like to your point here, I think we all could benefit from taking the picture exercise. And now in, in the Milton books, he has a saving jar and spending jar. Do you actively do that with your children? We do clear jars and they have give, save, spend on them. And I think it is really helpful because I, I think the clear jars help them kind of see things, see the money grow, which is a good positive reinforcement. And then when you split it out like that, so it's in different buckets where it's like, okay, well, this is my giving jar. So I can't dip into that to buy that grave digger truck. I have to, you know, that's just for church or wherever you're donating your money. And so I think that helps them keep things visualized in terms of what 
the money is for. Yeah, I, I think that's very effective. In chapter nine, you quote Manisha Takar, and the quote is, the money conversation is not a once and done. Now, you talked that you have a spouse, I have a spouse, and we've talked that this money thing is really complex. It's interwoven to all aspects of our lives. It started when we were kids, when we weren't conscious about it. Often we're not conscious about it. And it's a life journey that is, to your, use your word about writing book, nonlinear. Right. <laughs> it's very difficult. But then we go and introduce someone else to it. Or we're like, okay, you don't really understand all your money scripts. I don't understand mine, but let's commingle our money and have kids and try to make this work. <laughs> Why? What could go wrong? What, what could, could go, go wrong? It's, it's going to work. <laughs> What have you learned through your research, through your practical experience on how everything from our childhood experiences to our today experiences impact how we think, feel, and behave around money with our spouses? And what have you learned about having these conversations with your spouse about money? Yeah, good question. So, you know, I I have learned from trial and error and from research for sure. You know, I would say like that quote I really liked because the money conversation is not one and done. Like you can't just talk about money once and feel like you have it figured out. Especially if you have kids, you know, your expenses are changing all the time. And then if you're, you know, you're both working spouses, you have careers, you know, income is changing, income is growing. Um, When you have people that you bring together with a different background about money, uh, different thoughts about how to spend that money, and then you give them the same bank account, uh, you know, a lot of things can go wrong, <laughs> right? Because that, you know, that person might not agree with what you spend money on, you know, you guys might not be on the same page of what the, the longer term goal is for, for your money. So I think having a conversation with your spouse, you know, monthly, for sure, if not weekly, about just kind of what, where are we at today? What do we have going on? What are we trying to get to? What's that big picture puzzle that we're trying to solve for our future, just to keep sight of, of what you're doing and why, because it's easy to just get bogged down in the daily life and the daily, you know, expenses and reacting to things that are happening. Um, but if you have that conversation and it doesn't have to be like a serious, bad situation, it can be like a pizza and wine Sunday night date where you just kind of go through the account balances, like where you're, how you're tracking towards your goals you know, that sort of thing. But I think it's good to keep that conversation uh, top of mind. Yeah, it's so fascinating how important those conversations are, but how easy they are to avoid. And often, I think we pretend like they're not important, but that's maybe just out of fear. And I know my wife and I, we've been together for 16 years. And it wasn't until COVID and having two kids that I finally, I'll say, (laughs) learned so much from just seeking to understand her perspective. And I find that through clients and other conversations, we often feel like we're right. And especially someone with like, in in my shoes with a financial background, you you would tend to have this overconfidence bias. And yeah, I I just think it's fascinating that the, the more we seek to understand, I think we can learn about ourselves in how potentially we can tweak or change the way we actually deal with money. And I think it, it opens up the space to learn a lot about each other. Yeah. And you guys are on the same team, you know, so yeah. you want to understand their point of view and where they're coming from and then see how you can take the next step together. That is true. So my, my final question is around your children. And what I mean by that, let's, let's imagine that you are in the most peaceful place that you find that you can just relax and look out at the mountains, a lake, who knows, space by this time. You're, you're <laughs> end of life. 
and you're at this, you're in this peaceful moment and you decide to write a letter to your children's children on what you learned to have a healthy, healthy relationship with money. What would be the theme of that letter? You know, the theme of the letter would be, you know, understand who you are about money and where you're coming from. And don't try to do everything. Just try to do the, you know, the next right thing, right? So it's not about like fixing everything all at once. But if you know you need to save more for retirement, just do one more thing, right? So start your company 401k or increase the percentage 1%. So it won't make a huge difference now, but it will in the long run. So it's, you know, the theme would be, it's more about the little things that you're doing now, the little habits and the little systems that you put in place that will make a big difference down the road. I like it. I can't remember who, it was someone from IBM, but they said, uh, often we overestimate what we can accomplish in a year and underestimate what we can accomplish in 10 years. So I feel like right. your idea is just starting, starting small is quite impactful. And, you know, you, so you've been in this industry for quite some time. You've had a lot of different experiences, different types of employers, different setups, three books. I understand there's another Milton book coming out, I believe. Is that there correct? is. It's not, it's written. I wrote oh, it in the hair salon chair, oh, but it's not illustrated yet. <laughs> okay. So there's a third Milton book coming out. What have you learned, I guess, the most about your perspective on money? over the last 10 years as you've been diving into this industry? You know, it does kind of change and evolve. And I think, you know, in the beginning, I had more of a, you know, a money avoider stance, like, like, let's just not think about it. It'll be fine. But as I've gotten into it, it's more, it's really fascinating to see, you know, how our backgrounds impact the way we make decisions and how it really is tied together. Like money people think is mathematical and you think it's just like one plus two equals three, but but it's not at all. It's so emotional and, you know, so charged with, you know, all these different factors that it really is a fascinating psychological situation. Like every person <laughs> dealing with money so differently. Yeah. Thank you so much. And uh, perhaps it'll be a Milton goes to the hair salon book in the future. <laughs> Seems like that's where Milton gets his inspiration. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> Jamie, where can people find your book, your website, your, your work or anything that you'd like to share? So uh, the Milton, the books, there's Milton, the money savvy pup uh, brings home the bacon and Milton makes saving a habit uh, are both am available on Amazon. Um, my grown up book, money boss, mom, helping young parents be the boss of their financial future is available on Amazon or Kobo or Ingram spark. And you can follow me on Instagram at, at money boss, mom, or my website is uh, moneybossmom.com. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much, Sean. Thank you for tuning in this week to the Most Hated Effort podcast. I hope you're enjoying these conversations because I am having a lot of fun talking to wonderful people like Jamie Bossy. I'd like to hear from you. If you have certain guests or topic that you'd like me to explore on the Most Hated Effort podcast, please send me an email. I'd appreciate hearing from you. Until next week, have yourself a good one. <laughs>